Two Humorous Nurses would like to acknowledge the true custodians of the land in which we record our podcast, the Yorta Yorta people. We pay our respects to Elders past and present and extend our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders listening today. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Hey, are you a nurse? Do you like to express yourself in fun ways while at work? Then check out the high quality products for great prices at Eno's. From stylish scrubs to fun accessories, eNurse has you covered. Just head to enurse.com.au. Two Humorous Nurses with Kelly and Alicia, the podcast that makes learning history less boring. Ooh. Welcome to Two Humorous Nurses, where we plan to bring you funny, informal, conversational chats about all things nursing. Today's kind of nursing related. I feel like the word nursing is a bit looser these days. Yeah. <laughs> medical. Today's a medically themed. Yeah. Medical innovations. Yeah. How fun. <laughs> I feel like we always start our episodes like, how fun. This is mm, going to be fun. We're so funny. <laughs> Um, I don't know how this one came about. I think we liked the idea of what things had nurses invented and then um, it kind of spiralled into what great things have been invented in medicine. Yeah. And, um, you know, the game changers in the medical world that have made life easier. (laughs) (laughs) There's been so many changes even in the 22 years I've been nursing. Yeah, that have made life easier. That things things have come out and they've yeah. gone, this is the new bee's knees. Like um, sticky covers to go over, like IV cannulas or plasters or, mm. you know, like they never existed. We used to just tape a bit of glad wrap around someone's arm. And we still do that. We still use yeah, the black that, garbage bag. Our hospital's too lame to actually buy the device. Yeah, I did piece hear something. Uh, I heard something in a meeting the other day about the um, plastic bags that go over people's casts. Yeah, they're so they're good. Like, that actually designed they're designed for that by purpose. a nurse. I'm pretty sure. Amazing. Yeah, and then you have squares to go over like pick lines or yeah or the shower. Yeah, and they just have That's like great. sticky edges. Great. They just put it on. Too easy. Of course anyway, we're that. not talking about those. Yeah, no, we're not talking about those <laughs> today. Um, what are we talking about today? We're talking about a couple of um, specific innovations, I guess, or inventions that directly impact us um, as nurses and our patients. Um, one was even created by a nurse and, yeah, I mean, we could have chosen any and maybe one day we could talk about you and your finger and toe dressing. Nah, I'll, I'll get to that later. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I already kind of went down that rabbit hole. Oh, did you? All well, right, well, tell me bit. about your invention. Yeah. Mm. Well, I found this one really uh, fascinating and then when I found out it was invented by a nurse, I had to know more. I think you wanted to do this one. I was like, no, Kelly, no, I have to. <laughs> um, and it's the crash cart. Yeah. Originally called the crisis cart. Oh, that's way better. Is it? It's too hard to say. Somebody get the crisis cart. It's a crisis. (laughs) I don't know. Rather than now we're just like, he's crashing. Get the crash cart. I don't know that I've ever said he's crashing. I've just gone, fuck. I don't know if I've ever called Get the cart. (laughs) I'll be like, did you? You turned up without the car? What What did you come for? I love it when you're like the last person that runs to a code and you're standing by the trolley with your head out like, do you need need the car? Do I need to push it in? Is it a false alarm? Are they out of fall or are they dying? (laughs) Um, That's funny. Yeah, anyway, so officially the crash cart was, I mean, officially 
officially. Patented by someone named Joel Noble. Ugh, but I'll get to that. In 1967, Anita Dorr, a registered nurse who was working in Boston in the US, um, spearheaded the creation of the first emergency crisis cart. So she was working as the supervisor of an ED and she realised that it was taking people way too long to find all of the equipment that they needed in an emergency. So um, they didn't have like a designated area for emergency equipment. It was kind of in stores, I guess. Mm. So... um, and she said it was mostly that they'd get all the things and then just shove them in their pockets and yeah. then run to a coat. <laughs> in their and dresses. Like, Man, we could do a whole on. episode on the things that we bring Shoved home. in our pockets. <laughs> Wouldn't be that funny, but. <laughs> It'd be like when you go to a baby shower and they're like, what's in your handbag? Are you <laughs> play that game? <laughs> do you have this? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, but I never used to carry a handbag and now yeah, I have I a kid. Now yeah. I have to. <laughs> she consulted with her nursing staff. And um, figured out what items were absolutely necessary. And then she went home and her and her husband constructed a wooden prototype in their basement. They painted the cart bright red and put wheels on the bottom. Then obviously you could easily move it to the bedside. And I've got a picture here that we will um, put on Instagram when this airs. And it's like, (laughs) it's so cute. (laughs) It's... It's like a. She looks so happy. She's thrilled with her invention. This picture of her, and then I don't. It's literally just a picture of her, and then the crash car. It's not like the same picture. Anyway, so then I tried to figure out, like, based from this picture, what the hell is on this crash cart, right? Because there's like equipment. So it's it's a red kind of. It mm. looks like a table on wheels, basically. Yeah. Um. There's a shelf at the bottom and a shelf on the top, and then a little drawer that says medicines on it. Oh, cute. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It looks like there's a. The only Mercury Spigmo. Oh, I was going to say the only thing I can identify is the ooxygen cylinder on the bottom. Oh, <laughs> uh, on the top one there, I think it's the old school Mercury Spigmometer. Is that the one you learnt with? Mm. <laughs> In the sixties? Oh, is it really? No, <laughs> nah. Okay. But I reckon there's still a doctor here that uses one. Oh my god! Um, and I reckon that bottle of red stuff is maybe Mercurochrome. Do you okay, that stuff. <laughs> Not chloroform. <laughs> <laughs> And there's probably a glass syringe on there somewhere. Mm. Box of tongue depressors, maybe. I really couldn't. Um, Some bottles of saline. There's probably a, a line of Coke on there, you know, the old days. Classic. Anyway, yeah, that's cute. Yeah, so anyway, it there's lots of things what there, but I couldn't site. actually work out what was on it. But I guess I don't know enough about medicine in the 60s to no. be able to work that out. So that's the crisis cut. Mm. It was the... Um, it wasn't the only one, though, being developed around that time. So, obviously, she wasn't the only person who was who had identified the issue. Yeah. And other people had actually come up with similar concepts, but they were at the same time uh-huh. and they weren't um, in cahoots with one another. So, a few people have actually been credited with the invention. So, apparently, when Dor came up with the crash car, she went to patent it and someone was like, you can't. Whoever she went to said that she couldn't. Probably because was, she was female. Well, potentially. It, it was the 60s. Although that was like the turn of the turn no. of the – No. Well, I mean we're still <laughs> – Still not there. Um, so apparently that was her daughter who like quoted that saying that she did try but she was told that she couldn't. Um, so while she didn't receive a patent for the invention, she was credited for it. But Joel Noble did receive the patent. Hmm. Interestingly – they both, Joel Noble and Anita Dorr, both invented the crash car basically at the same time. I think it was within a year of one another um, and exclusive from one another. 
And then they both went on to found really important institutes and organisations oh. for their respective um, yeah. practices, I guess. So, so Anita Dorr um, went on to found the Emergency Nurses Association, which was the Emergency Department Nurses Association, and that's still going today. Yeah. And Joel Noble went on to found the Emergency Care Research Institute and they both founded them like, you know, within a few years of each other as well. And I thought... Maybe that's what it takes to to pioneer something. Yeah. You've got to have that extra level of drive, and you've got to have that extra, Passion. you know, yeah, for sure. Like you've got to be, got to be extra. into it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so the ECRI Institute is still going as well, and focuses on research in emergency medicine, resus, and related biomed engineering studies. That's cool. And I it got me thinking, you know, because we have joked about my finger and toe dressing, and I saw an article that was talking about Anita Dore and just saying how nurses really don't have the tools and they're really not invited to the table when it comes no. to design and how, you know, we lack the training and encouragement to take part in design. And I think, like, who better to consult with than the people who are actually mm. doing this job? Like, and the, I guess that's – I think there's lots of things that nurses have invented but that maybe we we don't realise because they just kind of appear on our shelves and we go, how cool is this? Yeah, this exactly. does this. Um but, yeah, I think that we absolutely should be involved in, like, finding solutions to workplace yeah, problems. Yeah, for sure. So I did Google then. I was like, you know what, if we're doing an episode on this, I'm going to go and find out how I get a patent for my finger and toe dressing. Right? <laughs> so I I Googled it. This Have you the- invented the finger and toe dressing yet? Do you know what product? Like what? Or you've just gone straight to patency? No, well, this I was like, what's the process, right? <laughs> like how do you go about when you invent something? Like what? Then, yeah. what's the next step? Because I don't know. And I've been no. talking about this for five years yeah. and done nothing <laughs> about it. It is way more in-depth than I anticipated. Oh, yeah, I imagine so. It's like you need to basically, even though your invention works well and it, it does the desired, like for me, it goes on beautifully. There's no like flaps that aren't stuck down. Like the whole thing is mm-hmm. secure, perfect. It works. It functions exactly how I designed it to. Yeah. Even though I know that, I basically have to go and do every other material I can find, every other possible way that I could make this work, every other design. Do I need to make the cuts a little bit longer, a little bit shorter, like, and document all of this process, like all of that trial Mm. and error, even if I don't have to, even because I know that my dressing works as function, as designed, right? Yeah. Then you have to go, well, do you have complete exclusivity of that design in your brain? Is that yours? Is that, like... Is it, has anyone else come up with anything that could possibly be related to the way that I came up with this design? And have they? Well, I will say that yes, others have. But not as good. But not as good. <laughs> and and I'm talking about Coverplus, like the, the brand, whoever makes Coverplus. Um, I think like Elastoplast, maybe they're the same people, I don't know. But um, they look the so same. other people have come up with similar concepts, but they don't work as well as mine, I've decided. And, and I didn't come up with mine based on those designs. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. Well, technically, no. So I don't think I could get a patent for my design is what <gasps> I'm saying. But you could create it. You just couldn't patent it. Exactly. But then I don't know. We could have the Beavis toe dressing instead of... Coloplast classic, you could have a Beavis classic. <laughs> a Beavis. The Beavis bunion. <laughs> no, it's not for bunion, sorry. Um, Beavis. Well, we wouldn't just say Beavis classic. You'd want Beavis. I don't know if I'd want it to be bespoke. called Beavis. Beavis bespoke toe dressings. 
I don't know that I want my brand to be bespoke. I want it to be like, you know, manufactured in China somewhere. I'm not going to be cutting them all out individually. <laughs> People just call you when they've got a toe dressing they need. Sure, hang on, I'll pop hang it on, in. I'll sit down with my fixamol. <laughs> anyway, oh, so funny. I have looked at cover plus. They make one that's like butterfly shaped, which is not at all how mine is shaped like no. it's it's similar i get it and i'm gonna draw it. a picture of mine and put it up on our stories maybe you could make it cut it out make I'll it put it on your finger yeah we'll do a live demo oh, great what a thrill <laughs> what a th- okay people are ex- people are get excited on the edge of their seat. make sure you pop it in your calendar set a reminder <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah anyway anyway so um that's my story about the crash cart i think i, I mean the initial prototype is very similar to what it is today. What it is today. The only difference is now there's more drawers and a little side bit. Probably more drugs. Probably more things like airway management because they probably didn't do that mm. um, as much back then. But the design itself is yeah. I mean, it looks very similar. It's red. It looks like it's got a lock on the. Front. And instead of a magnetic spigmo, we've got like a automated AED on the top. Yeah, and a electronic. BP. I was reading something about crash carts, about like the progression of crash carts and that recently they've started to include recording devices. Yeah. So that w- as soon as the crash cart is moved, it starts recording. That's cool. Like sound and sound. audio. Yeah, so audio. Oh, that's cool. So then you can go back and reflect. You can yeah. actually look at real time, time to treatment, time to defib, whatever yeah. it is. Because everything that gets done in an, in a recess is communicated. It's documented, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, it's documented on paper, but, like, when yeah. you're in a recess, you're going, like... I also wonder what place there is for... Not maybe not in small locations like ours where the recess team is just the ward stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe that's why we do have it. recess teams where the, the team leader for the day wears, like, a body cam. Well, that's, yeah. To, I mean, cops you know, do that, Exactly, they? yeah, to, you know, because then you could... It would be a great teaching tool It would be well. pretty damning, like, if... I mean, if things go wrong, they're always like learn. Yeah, but from. then they're not going wrong because people are doing something bad. They're going wrong because the situation is that you can't revive that patient anyway. But then Usually, you can look yeah. back at it and be like, as a learning tool, you mm. can be like, well, you literally did everything you could, and also you, you could show families that you've done everything you could. If it went to court and things like that. Yeah, but I mean, more. even as as for open disclosure, you can sit there and have a conversation with them and let mm. them know exactly what you've done. But if they wanted to see, you know, I feel like it's just an extra. You know, in today's society, you know, because a body that could cam, be your nursing invention. Oh, I don't care that much about <laughs> recess. So <laughs> I don't want to be involved in that. Um, anyway, while you're in the middle of a recess, there's nothing worse than cutting yourself on an ampule while trying to crack open that adrenaline. I actually did that recently. I've never cut myself oh. with an ampule ever. And someone's like, can you open this? I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Well, a very clever Aussie nurse invented a little gadget called the Snap It. Snaps ampules. Enos actually sent us one of those, and I, I since cutting, <laughs> since cutting my finger, I use it all the time. <laughs> it was designed to protect users from injury when an ampule exposes a sharp edge or shatters while being opened. With a simple insert and snap, you literally put this thing I over the head of the ampule. I haven't used it yet. I'm gonna have to take it to work so I can try it. You literally, it's like a little metal thing that yeah. you put over the head of the ampule and just snap it, and then and it snaps. You can chuck it in the bin without touching it. It's, yeah. yeah. Well, there's no it's blades. Innovative. Innovative. Yeah. There's no blades. It reduces the risk of glass contamination 
and it holds the snapped off glass top securely. So you can just eject it yeah. into the sharps container. Yeah. Um, you can get your snapper ampule opener and other essential nursing accessories at eNurse. Um, you can use our code HUMOROUSNURSES for 10% off. That's humorous like the bone. H-U-M-E-R-U-S. <laughs> nurses. E-Nurse is Australia's leading nurse shop, specialising in everything that a nurse would need to survive every shift. From high quality and stylish nursing scrub sets to handheld study guides and nursing equipment, E-Nurse are truly a one-stop shop for everything you need. So head to enurse.com.au. E-Nurse loves our nurses. Um, right, my topic. Yes, tell us about yours. I'm excited. You never put your notes in the, like, group document? No, it's right on separate document. So it's always a surprise. Oh. <laughs> I have chosen to do blood transfusions and the history of blood banking and um, history of blood banking. <laughs> Didn't we used to get transfusions from pigs? I can't wait to hear about this. Uh, anyway, I give blood to patients all the time. Um, and Your own blood, just directly, <laughs> yeah, vein to vein. <laughs> put it in there. Um, and obviously, if it's not given correctly, it is fatal. Um, mm. And despite giving blood literally sometimes weekly or more, um, it's one of the procedures that I actually am very vigilant mm. of doing correctly. I mean, mm. I do all of the stuff in our unit correctly, but blood is something that, like, if the patient's there, I'm very aware mm. that they're having blood transfusions because shit can go wrong in, like, a minute. Yeah. Mm. And I've seen it happen where the patient's been absolutely fine and in APO drowning in, like, the course it took from walk to the toilet and back. Wow. Anyway, I thought I'd go back and have a look at the history of it because, you know... What did they do before it? Yeah, it's, now it's very clinical. It's very, like, scientific. It's, yeah, yeah. You know. So it started back in 1628 when an English physician – I'm going to struggle with I that word for the whole. I love when you say physician. <laughs> it's my favourite. English physician William <laughs> Harvey good. discovers the circulation of blood in the human body. It, that blows my mind when they – how. anyway, doesn't matter. Yeah, but, like, imagine in the 1600s you yeah. cut yourself and you're like, how'd that happen? What is What's this? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> It tastes funny. <laughs> um, and then surprisingly, not long after that, the first attempt at a blood transfusion happened. I love how quickly they progressed oh. to shit, right? So 1665 was the first recorded successful trans- blood transfusion and it happened in England uh, by physician Richard Lower. Um, and Just he kept- say doctor. Okay. <laughs> Dr. Lower. Uh, he kept a dog alive by transfusing blood from another dog. Yes. 1667, Richard Lower and John Baptiste Denis reported a successful transfusion from lambs to human. Whoa. Successful. How uh, successful are we well, talking? Did they live a week? <laughs> I don't know what like, records are like from back then, but anyway, within 10 years, transfusion from blood of animals to humans became prohibited due to reactions. Oh. It took 10 years though. <laughs> <laughs> 10 years of study, like they've they've trial and error. I know, over 10 but I years. suppose I suppose with some things like they're going to die if they need blood, they're going to die anyway. Back then, so It'd like be hard to just try whatever. What the cause was yeah. Mm. In seventeen ninety five, American doctor Philip Singh Physic performs the first human blood transfusion. However, he doesn't publish the results. Right. Mm. I wonder why. Because they're dead. I don't know why, <laughs> but anyway. I would imagine his results weren't what he was expecting. What were they thinking? Honestly, let's just reflect here for a second. Thinking, 
hey, I think the best thing that we can put in a human's body is stuff that comes from an mm-hmm. animal's body. Mm. Like, okay, in well, some instance nowadays they do do that, like with valves from cows and stuff. But pigs. Yeah, pig and cows, I think. Uh, yeah. I saw it on TV. Grey's Anatomy. Oh, of course. <laughs> What can't? But anyway, I, I'm Dr. surely, McSteen surely, like human to human would have been the logical. I, that's what I thought. <laughs> process. Oh. Anyway, anyway, it takes like a couple of hundred years. Jesus Christ! For them to like work it out. Anyway, 1818, James Blundell. We are west where the rain. Anyway, British obstetrician. Obstetrician. Yeah. Okay. Performs the first successful or performs a successful blood transfusion for a patient with postpartum hemorrhage. He uses blood from the patient's husband. In the next five years, he performs 10 transfusions, five of which are successful. He publishes these results um, along with creating various instruments to perform the transfusions and a rationale indication of what of blood transfusions. Okay. So, so he's he, doing a lot of the work. He here. did a lot of work, yep. So he introduced two instruments for the purpose of transfusions. Um, they're called the impeller and the gravator. Mm-hmm. Gravitator? Gravitator. The impeller and the gravitator. The impeller was a complex invention consisting of a cup, tube and syringe. And then using the gravator, <laughs> gravit- using the gravitator, blood was injected into the patient by a tube suspended from the vessel held high above the patient. Okay, so similar to... So you collect the blood from another human, you put it in the thing and then you use use gravity to put it through. But he made a fancy thing called the gravitator. Um, Information of both these apparatuses were published in a very prestigious medical journal in 1829. Some of the indications that he suggested for transfusion were postpartum hemorrhage, extreme malnutrition, puerperal fever, which is a fever that occurs within three days of giving birth and it's rarely seen anymore in today's society. It's like one of those diseases that just doesn't happen anymore. Cancer of the pylorus, a ruptured uterus and hydrophobia, which is a fear of water, which back then would have been related to having rabies um, it's a, a quite a symptom of yeah. of um, human rabies. Um, so he'd sort of set up this, like, who should get blood, how do you give it, and the yeah. instruments used to give it. But there's no knowledge yet about no blood knowledge types? Yet. No. So in 1840 in London, Samuel Armstrong Lame, aided with James Blundell, successfully treated haemophilia patients with whole blood transfusions. So they're starting to look at other blood diseases no. that they know. Yeah. Then in 1867, John Lister uses antiseptic to control infections during transfusions. So they start realising that transfusion reactions can be treated and they start to, yeah, use like antiseptic to wash the blood and things like that. But it's very agricultural. Like it's, (laughs) they're not really sure. Then in 1873 to 1880, for some reason... (laughs) They start looking at what could humans be, what could be used as a blood substitute in humans mm. if blood isn't available. Mm. So they start looking, US um, doctors start looking at milk from cows, <laughs> goats, and humans as a blood substitute. Uh, a few years later, they realize Wasn't working. milk's not, not doing too good. <laughs> so they start using saline infusions um, mm. to, yeah, obviously reduce the adverse reactions to milk. 
shocking. <laughs> but I love how, like, anyway, yeah, just their school of thought is like, what can we use now? So now they know you could substitute by giving people fluid. fluid. You can actually help I them even if you're not giving blood. So now they're looking understanding at. Understanding of the components of yeah, blood. Yeah. So they're looking at different things. In 1900 is when everything changes for blood. A very clever man called Karl Landsteiner, um, who's an Austrian physician, develops the or discovers the three human blood types, A, B and C. C was later changed to O. Um, a couple of years later, a fourth type, AB, was added by Alfred Di Costello and Adriano Stiolo. Landsteiner receives a Nobel Peace Prize for his discovery of the blood groups in 1930. So they're starting to realise that not all blood's the same. 1930. It took him years to get a... Hang on. Less than 100 years ago. Was when he got the Nobel Peace Prize. In 1900 is when they discovered. Uh, right, okay. So 120 years ago it was discovered. Okay. In 1907, Ludwig Hechton <laughs> suggests that transfusion safety might be improved by cross-matching between donors and patients to ins- exclude incompatibility. Mm. So now they're starting to think if you've got these groups, what groups work, what don't work. So they put a lot of effort into this. I wonder this. how they were getting donors. Were they taking them from dead, from like oh, cadavers probably. or something? Who knows? They did a lot of that stuff, didn't they? Ruben Ottenberg performs the first blood transfusion using blood typing and cross-matching in New York. Um, They recognise that there's universal utility between group O donors. Mm. In 1908. Sorry, 1908. Whether they did like, you know, they took a thousand people. Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. Okay, we're going to give O blood to... Well, you can test it in the tubes before you you test it in humans maybe. I don't know because you'd see... It's all about um, like the killing of the cells and stuff, mm. yeah. So in 1908, um, anti-globulin reactions are described. So they started to wash the blood to remove unbound antibodies. So when Amazing. you cross-match and you realise that they're forming these antibodies and then they wash it all out and they can give it to you, which still happens today. That's amazing. Yeah. 1912, Roger Lee and Paul Dudley, Paul Dudley White, develop Lee White clotting time. They learn that it's safe to give O blood, um, group O blood to patients of any blood group and that blood from all blood groups can be given to AB patients. The term universal donor and universal recipient are coined and that's a game changer wow. because all of a sudden now you can give trauma patients O. O, they know this. But they haven't developed a way to, at this stage they're still just doing direct Donors, there's no storage of blood. Oh, okay. Yeah. In 1914, anticoagulants are developed to allow the longer preservation of blood mm-hmm. um, and they use sodium citrate as a anticoagulant to allow for blood transfusions to go from direct to indirect. took 10 years for this to be accepted though. Well, that would, that would be a big undertaking going, Huge. how can we make blood last? Yeah, yeah. So the discovery of... Um, being able to store the blood for several days uh, in 1916 was became the first blood depot, uh, which was utilised during the World War One, so they could send blood to the battlefields yeah. for American soldiers and British soldiers. Wow! Yeah, in 1932. I wonder how Europe was going with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> God. In 1932, the first blood bank was established, and by 1937, blood banks were in hospitals across America. Crazy. 
Yeah, that's like less. That's like ninety years ago. In uh, nineteen thirty nine and um, nineteen forty, the R rhesus blood group system was discovered mm. again by Carl Landsteiner. Well, good on you, Carl. Yeah, him and a couple of other blokes realized that this rhesus negative positive blood group were the reaction of the majority of blood transfusions mm. now because they'd worked out the cross matching of the groups, mm-hmm. and, but now this rhesus factor. Was so I guess the they had to problem. work out why we're still having reactions, yeah, even so, if they're going from O to O, yeah, or whatever exactly, it is, yeah. yeah. So they worked. So yeah, this along with the discovery of the ABO blood groups was like the biggest breakthrough with blood banking and transfusing. Um, in 1950, they started to look at the um, sustainability of blood in a blood banking, which they did sort of have going, but not really. It's mm-hmm. only a three day thing, kind of right. They changed from um, reusable glass bottles to plastic bags. Okay. To, or pl- not plastic, you know, you know what I mean, what like the bag they come in today. Yeah. Yep. In the late 50s, 1950s, the, they formed a committee which was to inspect and accreditor the monitoring of implementation of standards for blood banking um, across America. And the first edition of the standards for blood transfusion services was developed so yeah. it's really not that long ago that they crazy yeah it's weird um, to think that some of the people who are like blood nurses now were born like you know the yeah. blood specialists were born before these no, like, no. accreditation <laughs> yeah. things were the committee was formed as the blood use um, had exploded due to the demand from open heart surgery advances in trauma care mm. and just the general knowledge that blood was good. Yeah. So they started this committee right at the right time because mm. blood use was starting to become a normalised procedure. And I wonder when like ambulances like became well, an official service and then yeah. those people like, you know, you know what I mean? Like the yeah. demand would have been going up if as medicine got well, At this stage better. you couldn't do it outside of a hospital. Setting. Mm-hmm. So during the 50s and 60s, blood banking and transfusion technology became the focus of many scientists. Right. Um, whole blood was being separated into plasma and red blood cells. Platelet concentrates were being used to reduce mortality from hemorrhage. Mm. Anti-hemophilic fac- hemophilic factor concentrates were being used to treat coagu- coagulation disorders. Fucking hell. <laughs> Plasmapheresis was being introduced and um, the rhesus immunoglobulin um, was being commercially introduced to prevent the rhesus disease factors in newborns with Rh-negative mm. women. And in America alone, there was over 6 million units of blood collected over that time period. So they're really starting to get in there and look at blood and how safety and, and things. But they still weren't long-term storing it. Wow. In 1970, um, blood banks moved How to long were they storing it for? Uh, it was only a short period of time, like a, um, I think it was like three to five days. Right. Um, blood banks were moving towards all-volunteer donation in the 70s. Mm-hmm. In 71, hepatitis B testing begins on donated blood. So prior to the 70s, mm. no blood was tested for disease. Mm. Oh, and that's why like prior to those dates, if people receive blood transfusions prior to those dates, then they are like they most of them. Well, they're at risk of any blood-borne disease. Yeah. Yep. A lot of bloodborne disease weren't available, weren't around. Yeah, I've got a friend who's HIV positive because of oh, a blood fuck. transfusion. I met a I met a hep C and then they got cured. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Thankfully. In um eighty three, nineteen eighty three, additives were added to extend the shelf life of red blood cells to forty two days. 
1985, the FDA approves enzyme-linking immunosorbent assay. So it's called ELISA for the first blood screening test to detect HIV antibodies. So that's quite a few years after HIV was was rampant. Yeah. Freddie Mercury had already died. No, he didn't. He died in the 90s. But yeah. Between 1985 and 1996, improvements were made to test blood donor blood for HIV, Hep A, B and C and to help reduce the number of transfusion-related exposures there was also a program um, in the late 90s where if you were affected by transfusion-related illnesses mm-hmm. or diseases from the blood, that there was um, money available wow. for you. So, because, you I mean, know, that was nobody's fault, though. No, like, they just, just didn't, know. They didn't know. Yeah. Um, since 2000, there's been huge developments with blood and blood products. Um that includes a lot of things like screening for all viruses that become transfusable um, in the transfusable form. So there's actually viruses that have come and gone that uh, have been cross-contaminated through um, viruses. And um, things like CAR T-cell therapy, so chimeric antigen receptor for treatment of hematological cancers is a big thing that's come through to mm. treat hemo cancers. Um, they've recently discovered that they can freeze dry plasma to treat hemorrhage out in the combat setting. So that's been something that's come out. So there's all these like cool things, like Mm. doing a blood transfusion these days is actually very safe. Mm. So in 2022, there's still huge issues around who can and can't, who can and cannot donate blood Mm. based on sexuality and the locations you've lived in the world. Although I do believe they've just lifted the mad cow England thing. Um, however, I think change is coming mm. with the sexuality um, and stuff like that because the rigorous testing and donations. And there's more education out there, and people are yeah. in charge of their sexual health. You know, more yeah, now and than I they mean, ever have been. Yeah, absolutely. That's a whole different story. That is a whole different story. Blood matching. It just blew my mind that it took what like four hundred years to get to where we are. From the very first time someone said, wow, we've got blood in our body. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine what that was like? Like everyone knew that you bled, but no one really understood it. Yeah. Could you imagine? I can't. That's sometimes I think about how somebody discovered gravity. Like, I know. And how, how do you give it that name? Like there's just – my brain kind of ends up in this whirlwind spiral. I mean, how did someone discover Wi-Fi? How did <sighs> someone discover – like no, these that's, tiny sorry, little hang on. things. Wi Fi like, did not just exist. Like someone created <laughs> it. That's true. Someone created Wi Fi. Still fucking <laughs> smart. <laughs> smart. <laughs> Saying Wi Fi is the same as gravity. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. is that is fascinating. Really, like I, so do you know you said about how they can store blood for forty two days or whatever. I actually still assumed it was like you know when you get the blood bag and it says it expires after a couple of days. I just assumed that. You know, that's not, it's just the cross match that expires. It's not the actual the blood bag. bag. The bag will have a longer expiry than your cross match. Your cross match is only valid for 72 hours. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so you only can transfuse in that 72 hour period, but the blood might not expire for another two weeks. Mm. I know I blew, I've a lot I, blew I blew someone's mind the other day explaining that to them. They were like, oh my God. I think God. I did know that because I know when know the cross that. match expires. But I was I assumed that blood, you know, you have a half an hour time limit between taking it out of the fridge and starting your transfusion. So I think that kind of 
I don't know, that time limit tells me that this is uh, perishable, I guess. Do you know what I mean? If it doesn't get done in four hours, it explodes. (laughs) (laughs) Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. No, I mean like (laughs) I guess I just feel like it's so precious that and I don't know, I feel like the cells can start. I got um, grumpy at someone once because they turned up with the patient with the blood but they hadn't actually put a cannula in. I was like, never prep the product until a cannula is in the patient. Damn straight. Oh my god, that's not that you, wasn't here. That was years ago. What but if it I takes like, you half an hour to get a line in? What if you, exactly? What if you can't get a line exactly? In? Yeah. Well, then anyway. it goes back to the fridge. Anyway, I guess that was my thing. I, I really just assumed that it was so precious and that it had I mean, a really strict so time precious, limit and that it no, expires it very quickly. And yeah, it's no. amazing. I mean, of course they found ways to store it. That's yeah, good. that's exactly right. I went to give blood once, and then I was like, "Oh yeah, I have hemochromatosis," and they're like, "You can't give blood." I'm like, "What do you mean? It's iron rich. You can give blood. You just need to. I need a doctor's letter." Yeah, they need to fill out your thing for you and they have to use it differently. Yeah, no, it's so annoying. I throw out so much blood. I find it ironic that I'll oh. have a patient in the chair that I'm taking blood out of. For hemochromatosis. And then in the next chair I'll be giving an iron transfusion to someone oh. that's got no iron and in the next chair I'll be giving a blood transfusion to someone with no blood. <laughs> Here I am throwing away 400 mils oh, of beautiful shocking. blood. Why don't they go and give blood? Oh, a lot of them. It's just too complicated because I yeah. need a doctor to fill yeah. it out. Yeah. <laughs> To me, and then I got pregnant and I was like, oh, well, I had a PPH, mm. so I might I as have, well hang on to my blood for a little bit longer. I just have no iron, so it's hard to give blood when you have no iron. You can have some of mine. Yeah, great. We'll do a, we'll direct. Do a vein to vein. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a few things that nurses did invent. Some more things I found. Do you want to hear them? Yeah, go Some for of it. these are new and some of these are old. Yeah. Um, Colour-coded IV lines. I don't use them. We use the stickers. Yeah. But um, in 2003... A nurse named uh, Terry Barton Salinas and Gail Barton Hay, they might be related, <laughs> patented colour-coded IV lines Sisters. in 2003. It came to Terry when she was in uh, a labour and delivery nurse mm. and they wanted to reduce medication errors in time crunch situations, which clever. The crash cart, which we already talked about. There's a diabetic foot ulcer device being, um, well, pretty much being perfected right now by Ernesto Holguin, um, he's a dialysis clinical coordinator, and he created a device to prevent diabetic foot ulcers and prevent infection in, in existing ulcers. So it inspects, dries, and takes pictures of patients' feet and sends the information to their doctors. Huh, how weird. That's anyway, cool. so it's like very recent, and it gained popularity around the time that the iPhone came out, oh, yeah. and he's been perfecting it ever since. He got a patent for it for about two, about two years ago. Good on him. Sanitary pads. I thought this was a good one. So a nurse came up with this during World War II um, because they used to use salia cotton to treat wounds. Apparently it's like five times as absorbent as cotton. Yeah. And um, it was more readily available at the time than cotton. So um, they began – the nurses in the war began using the cotton as – the salia cotton as sanitary pads. Clever. And um, by the end of the World War, it was turned into commercial sanitary pads. Ostomy bags. A yes, Danish nurse, Elise Sorensen, invented the ostomy bag. This is all about making nurses' life easier. So true. It's all and about also making. for the patient. Like imagine That's how exactly imagine right. if you had a um, stoma and and no bag to put on it. <laughs> the fuck would you do? Enough trouble with a stoma. <laughs> oh, I don't have a stoma. <laughs> Without a stoma, yeah. <laughs> um, I love this. This is called the treble. It's um, Joyce Harrell, a nurse, created the treble. The invention enables healthcare professionals to attach a table to any pole. 
Wow. It's a helpful attachment to IV poles because it provides an extra surface for tools. And I think... Oh, we need that, surfaces. See, that's a fucking genius idea. That is a fucking genius idea. A little table that you Why can clip on. Why are they not in hospitals? I do not understand. So a little table that you clip onto an IV pole. Imagine when you're putting in a cannula and you've got a little table there. Or you're doing anything with a little table. Just love at it. the head of the bed or at the bottom of the bed. Oh, oh. genius. Where, love it. Where are these in our life? I know. Anyway, that's oh. what I got. God, that's interesting. I know. That one really excited me. I wonder what other medical innovations are in the makings. Oh, I reckon there's probably heaps. Uh, if you know of something, send us a DM <laughs> on Instagram. We'll steal the idea and use it at work. <laughs> if you know how to get your hands on a treble, sign me yes, up. Yes, if you have them at your work, send us a photo. Oh, yeah. Man, I want to see them in action. And and if you have a, a funny, like, nursing invention, I want to yes. see it. I'm going to take a picture of the next finger dressing I do. Yeah. Um, make sure you follow us on Instagram at Two Humorous Nurses Podcast. Uh, don't forget to rate us five stars or leave us a review on the platform you're listening to us on right now. Um, send us an email with whatever you want, really. Just yeah. say hi. Hello at twohumorousnurses.com. That's humorous like the bone. H U M E R U S. Bye. Bye.